Welcome to the podcast everyone. My name is Adnan Shafi and welcome yet again to the Firm Analyst. This is going to be the last episode of season 1 before we take a one week season break and following this week uh this coming week rather we will be moving on to season 2. So this is going to mark the first deep dive podcast where every single month the last episode in the season is going to be focusing on a specific topic that's affecting the legal market today. So I've titled this podcast Battle for the USA and we're going to be discussing why the US is such an important market mainly for UK headquartered firms that are looking to go more international even though they are international and why they're so concerned with consolidating their practice in the US. So that's what we're going to get into. Thank you once again for tuning in and I really hope that you enjoy the episode. So to give you a brief overview of what we'll be discussing in this episode, we're going to just be looking at a couple of things that'll help us und- help us understand how the legal market works on an international scale. We're going to be looking at certain events uh, and specifically what I would personally call the raid on London by American firms or US headquartered firms. Uh, that's how a lot of them refer to themselves. And we're going to be looking at specific projects that certain firms have led and uh, by by led I mean led into trying to expand into the US. We're going to be looking very briefly at Denton's Golden Spike, uh Clifford Chance's Texas office and some of their relationship um some of the relationships that they've forged in the US before the A&O Sherman uh merger as well or just recently. And we'll also be focusing on the A&O Sherman merger as well, having a bit of a discussion about some firms that operate best friends model such as Slaughter and May and their relationship with Cravath Swain and Moore and how that's been impacted by their recent move into practicing English law in London. So before we get even get to that, let's just step back and look at why do firms operate internationally? Why don't firms just stick to their own countries and build their practice from there? And the answer is very simple and I'm going to look at what I'll call two main reasons. So the first one is uh just actually no one reason but it has sort of two limbs to it. So you have globalization and this is essentially the world to put in very layman terms it's just the world getting very very small. And you've probably all experienced this. You'll find that some brands in the US end up coming to the UK and in my experience for example I remember KFC came to Kenya back in was it 2011 uh, and I'm just currently here in Kenya so I'm just reminiscing on that but essentially you have companies that are able to expand more easily because of things like tech and by tech I mean even as far back as you know just the invention of planes that really bridged the gap in terms of you don't have to take months to get across the atlantic now you can simply take uh just maybe 7 or 8 hours from the UK for example and now that we have computers and you can for example hear me possibly through your phone speaking this makes it 100 times easier to communicate across borders that means that for businesses it's so easy for them to want to tap in uh, to be able to tap into different markets so the first example is obviously a business growing across borders so imagine you have law firm A and business B 
So Business B has been doing really, really well in the UK and they're looking to expand into the US. If law firm A is not based in the US, don't you agree that it would be quite challenging um, for them to instruct law firm A on that particular matter, especially if they don't have any US qualified lawyers, for example, and if you have certain firms in the US that are perhaps more familiar with the economy there, you might actually just opt to instruct them if you're a business. The second type is obviously cross-border deals. Let's say Business B has now really grown into the US. Now they have offices in Latin America, East Africa, Asia, etc. And now they're looking to merge with another business that's a multinational corporation. And this is really very, very common if you're looking at working at international firms or even magic circle firms, US firms. This is quite normal. And I think the 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 firm that I think has probably done some of the deals that involve the most jurisdictions has to be Baker McKenzie. If I can remember, uh, when I was there for an open day, one of the partners mentioned doing a corporate restructuring across 70 jurisdictions. And that's that's quite impressive. But this is essentially what I mean. Would you rather deal with, in for example, in that case, if you're that business that's looking to restructure, or even, let's say, it's a cross-border lending involved in banks from these 70 jurisdictions, would you rather work with separate law firms or one law firm with different offices that have some sort of relationship, some sort of shared fee structure? Everything is centralized and you don't have to worry about having communication mishaps. That's where this idea of the international law firm came from. And that's why Baker McKenzie was looking to really, I mean, when, when you look at the, the founders of Baker McKenzie, that's what they really envisioned, an international law firm that can operate from basically almost anywhere. Now, another question then in that case, we know why law firms operate internationally. Why the USA? And I think there's there's several answers to this question. And it all boils down to the fact that I believe that the US actually has the highest GDP or the, the largest GDP rather in the entire world. It's the largest economy in the world. And I'm just going to illustrate a few things. If you look at certain US states, and uh, my sources for this are Wise Voter and Google. So the GDP of the UK is currently sitting at, I think it's for 2022, it was $3.13 trillion. And now I just want to pause here for a bit. And I want you to guess the GDP of California. Just have a quick guess and um, maybe perhaps just leave that thought, let it simmer for a bit and then come back to the podcast and I'll let you know. So if you have done that little exercise, if you got 3.5 trillion for California's GDP, then well done. <laughs> but just for some comparison based off of these figures, that means that, the Cal- that California is technically a larger economy than the UK. So if a firm was able to set up shop in California, and operate there, then technically you have access to a wider range of business, even in the UK. Now, if you had both, that's really where you want to get it at. Now, for example, if you look at a state like Texas with a GDP of 2.1 trillion, or New York State with a GDP of 1.9 trillion, you can start to see where the argument comes from. And obviously, 
if you look at certain industries, just to give you <clears throat> a bit of some more insight, uh, and this again goes back to the point of there's just a lot of business happening in the US that um, it really, in comparison, it really dwarfs whatever's happening in a lot of places around the world. So, for example, if you look at private equity, the private equity industry is currently valued at around 7.3 trillion US dollars. And if you go into Investopedia and look at, for example, the largest private equity funds around the world, only two out of the 10 largest private equity funds around the world were set up and headquartered in the US. So you can already see that if a firm has a strong corporate practice, this is a massive opportunity for them and it's it's a no-brainer. And this, of course, we can definitely see this with, uh, for example, Evershed Sutherland <clears throat> really taking advantage of that merger and we'll have a discussion about that a bit later. But if you want to follow someone who's in this space, then I highly recommend following a man named John Gill. He's a partner at Evershed's and I believe he's the head of private equity. And he's been working with uh, on deals involving uh, attorneys from the US and lawyers from the UK. And there's been a lot of collaboration that I've seen personally, uh, you know, from Evershed. So that just goes to say that within this area of corporate just alone, there is that incentive to get involved in this market. And even, I mean, if you listen to that last podcast, and I highly recommend that you do if you haven't already, the equity capital markets, or essentially if you're looking at listing shares or selling shares in the market uh, or in the US market seems to be a bit more <clears throat> just active. And if you look at firms or companies choosing to list, you'd find that the US is actually a really popular destination, specifically the New York Stock Exchange. And if anything, a stat that goes to show that perhaps Europe does have its ups and downs in terms of the equity capital markets, listings on the London Stock Exchange have actually gone down by 90%. They were down 90% in 2022. And that's actually quite, quite, quite a lot. Uh, and if you want to look at deals that, I mean, I've actually picked this up from legal business. So if you have access to legal business, I highly recommend looking through the yearbooks. I think most um, schools or unis would have access to that. Let's look at the top 10 legal advisors on global deals by value in 2022. <clears throat> this is from the magazine and they've quoted DealLogic. And I found this list quite interesting because if you look at the top 10 legal advisors on global deals by value, i.e. the largest amount, so for example, the largest here is $559 billion. <clears throat> If you look at that, there's only one UK-based firm on that list, and that's Freshfields. The rest include Selvin and Cromwell, which is at the top, Simpson Thatcher, Scadden, White and Case, Latham and Watkins, Kearney, Davis Polk, Watcher, Lipton Katz, and Cravath Swain Moore. So this, again, just goes to show you that if you're doing big-ticket M&A, you benefit immensely from having a headquarters, or not even just a headquarters, an office, in, in the US, or at least having a, a very large presence so that you can be able to get onto those legal panels so that you can be able to advise on these massive M&A deals. And the reason why I mentioned the list that pertains to value <clears throat> is because a lot of firms actually make insane amounts of money from big ticket M&A. And that money is like significant. And just to give you an example, Elon Musk is in the process of suing his 
um, lawyers in the US, and actually they were on this list, watched Lipton Katz. They were representing him when it came to him purchasing Twitter, now X, and they were they actually charged him, I think it was about $19 million. And that was his legal fee. He's actually suing them about that legal fee. But this just goes to show you that these are the sort of figures that firms are, are making from big ticket m and And this, again, goes to show that th- these U.S. headquartered firms, they have those strong PE, corporate practices, debt finance practices. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. This is where they came from. This is their bread and butter. And this is what they're focusing in, as opposed to the traditional, more traditional, I should say, um, UK model, which is to go full service. So we'll have a very brief discussion about all of this in due course. So let's very briefly look at the history of US headquartered firms opening up in the UK. And I think this is a very key thing that I missed out on when I was applying and looking at different firms and seeing where I wanted to end up. And I actually end up looking at US law firms as if they were just set up very recently in the UK and they had just moved in. But just to give you a bit of history, Baker McKenzie was actually the first firm to arrive in the UK and that was in 1961, so quite a while ago. Baker McKenzie has been here for a while. And if you go into the 70s, you find firms like Sherman and Sterling, White and Case, Mayor Brown coming in, the 80s, Jones Day and Scadden, and in the 90s, Kirkland, Latham and uh, Will Gottschall as well. So this is just to point out that you have quite a few significant law firms that have decided to set up shop in London, and this is more or less in line with their strategy of becoming international firms, although, albeit that they have a lot of their operations or most of their operations within the US, and they have outposts or other offices around the world to cater to those multinational corporations. But just to point out, I don't want to put all these US firms into one basket. There are firms that have decided not to opt for this strategy at all. So for example, you have Watcher Lipton, a New New York-based firm, and they have decided not to move into London. And I'm I'm not actually sure about the international situation quite yet, but they haven't moved into London yet. And they're still one of the the most profitable firms in the US and the world. So that, again, gives you an idea of how large the US economy is. Even just looking at New York being one of those areas where you find a lot of economic activity happening, so many listings happening, takeovers, etc. There is quite a lot of work to go around in the US alone. And then you also have some firms that for a while they they, they joined, or they, they set up offices in London, but they were only offering US law-based uh, services. And you have firms like Paul Weiss until recently and Cravath until recently as well. And Davis Polk until I think it was about 12, 2013 uh, or earlier than that. I can't be sure. But you have a couple of firms that went for that model. And as I just mentioned, Paul Weiss just hired, uh, I think it was four partners from Kirtland and Ellis to kick off their English law practice. And Cravath, Swain and Moore hired two leveraged finance partners from Sherman earlier this year to kickstart their English law practice. So just again, to give you some more stats, in 2015, uh, there was a survey done that discovered that US firms take up about 53% of legal spend, and UK firms or UK-based firms took up just around 7%. 
So this is this is our background of these US headquartered firms coming into the UK and perhaps looking at it as a strategic way to enter the European market and the rest of the world because London is sort of seen as one of those English speaking sort of cities as well, just the UK as a whole as an English speaking nation. And uh, for the US, that makes it very easy to do business. And that makes it easier to even go, for example, and do business in places like Australia or even places like in the Middle East as well, because there are quite a few relationships there. Or even Africa as well, because you have a lot of the Commonwealth nations uh, within Africa and obviously outside of Africa that uh, they have English as their first language. So it's definitely one of those strategic places that these uh, US firms were looking into. But also... I mean, now we're talking about the history. Let's also just very briefly discuss the risks of expansion and just the risks of setting up new offices. And we'll, we'll do that in the context of discussing key mergers and expansions of, uh, of certain firms trying to get into that U.S. market, break into that U.S. market. So we're going to start off with looking at Clifford Chance as well. And the... From the earliest thing that I could find regarding Clifford Chance in the U.S. was the merger with Roger and Wells, which is a U.S. firm as well. And they merged in 2000, and they actually managed to see a lot of potential in the U.S. And I believe this was that time when Clifford Chance was really looking to break into the U.S. market. And this is evidenced by their involvement in uh, L.A. and San Francisco, where they opened up offices. But again, and this is the part we're going to talk about, risks they actually ended up having to close those two offices and they lost around 38 lawyers to rival firms. Uh, so this was, again, one of those things that was very, very difficult or shows, illustrates how difficult it is for firms to operate internationally. I'm just going to give you a few more examples because when I discuss this in the podcast, I think a lot of people just have a tendency to look at business in a very opaque, one-sided sort of way. But the whole point is, if you're moving into an entire new country, uh, there's probably language barriers for some people. There's probably new business environment, new regulations, even regarding regulations of like your lawyers, etc. That is very, very difficult. And I'll give you a few examples to actually illustrate it. Even for, for Clifford Chance, they had to close down the Budapest office in 2009 and they pulled out of South Korea in 2021. Meanwhile, Norton Rose Fulbright closed the Abu Dhabi offices and uh, Kazakhstan offices in 2018. Latham, literally, I think it was one and a half weeks ago, they also closed their Shanghai office and Denton's had to decouple from Daqing. So the whole point is that expansion can be really, really risky business and it does have its casualties, but this is, this is the game of, of international business. Yes, these firms are great, but at the end of the day, Remember, we have humans within firms and humans are running firms. To be able to expand flawlessly is, is impossible. There will always be challenges. And that's the context in which I want you to listen to this podcast. So let's actually have a look at some other firms that decided to see the, or they, they saw the potential in the US and decided to actually go down the merger route. So you have Lovells and Hogan and Hudson that formed Hogan Lovells in 2010 then, of course, you had the merger between Brian Cave and Bowen Leighton Paisner in 2018. Uh, and keep in mind, just to show you how difficult this process was as well, uh, Bowen Leighton Paisner, as it then was, was in discussions with uh, a Miami firm named Greenberg uh, Trorig in 2016, and that deal was also called off. The same thing for 
Ashurst and Sidley Austin. There was talks about a merger in 2013. That didn't really materialize. Uh, but in terms of some mergers that did materialize, we have the Eversheds and Sutherland, Asbel and Brennan in 2017, DLA and Piper Rednick Gray Carey in 2004. You have l- different firms. And the whole point of me going through this list is just to show you that these firms, uh, or there is a trend rather, of firms really seeing this uptick in business in the US and saying, okay, we need to really uh, get in on that particular um opportunity. So you also have Bond Dickinson, Womble, Carlisle, Sandridge and Rice again in 2016, 2017 that formed Womble, Bond Dickinson. And just to keep showing you, for example, that a lot of firms are still considering uh, this idea of merging. Just this year, BDB, Pittman's and Womble, Bond Dickinson had merger talks, but those again fell through. Um, so you have quite a few more. You have Project Golden Spike uh, from Denton's as well. There's a dual partnership model where you can be a partner in a U.S. firm and you can also be a partner at Denton's International. So that's the model that they've gone for. And basically, there's many ways to skin a cat. And perhaps the most interesting and most relevant specifically to this podcast is the Alan Novery and O. Mulvaney and Myers talks in 2019. This is showing Alan Novery's intentions as early as 2019, to look for a partner with which to merge in the U.S. And this is actually a really good backdrop. I'm going to now go into and explain something that's a bit more modern in terms of applicants looking to understand the context of this entire U.S. expansion. And this is what I call the raid on London. And this is, I think, it's a period between 2018 and 2023, where you had a range of lateral hires and salary wars, and there was just so much activity that really shook up the London legal market. And we're going to try and unpack why that happened and why it served as a very, very important backdrop for firms starting to more seriously consider U.S. mergers or expansions, and for the main case study of this podcast, which is the A&O Sherman and Sterling merger. So if you want to rewind back to 2018, and this again, the first story that I found on this particular matter, it could have been well earlier, and it's very likely that there have been multiple raids on London, as I explained earlier. But this most recent one, I feel, was really, really unique because of the economic conditions that underpinned it. So if you look at 2018 uh, and you're going into 2020, and this is where you start to see the pay wars coming around, uh, and actually, the pay wars have started to stagnate in terms of newly qualifieds, if you've noticed as well, if you've been paying attention to that. But let's actually look at the background of where did these salary wars come from? Because I need people to understand, as I mentioned last time, when I was in, uh, when I was doing my A-levels, <clears throat> I was student government chairman. So we were invited by the board just to have a look at the school's financials. And I recall seeing that you know, salaries would take up so much of the school's expenditure. And in some cases, you even find for some companies, you you wouldn't be surprised that half of the expenditure is salaries. Especially, for example, at a lot of um, these uh, private equity-focused uh, law firms, 
you might find a senior partner being paid $10 million. And this is not even a joke. You literally find some some partners getting paid 10, 15, even 20. Like if you're a very, very senior partner or managing partner, you might be getting paid $20 million a year. And that's just, you know, something to talk about. So and this even opens up perhaps a conversation of where this pay war came from. So for partners, I think that the main issue in terms of US firms versus UK-based firms is that there was a different type of remuneration model, generally speaking. It's not to say that every UK firm operates like this, but there's something that was quite common within the the UK legal market called lockstep, where as a partner, you stay for a couple of years and then you move to the next step in terms of the next tier of your salary. But a lot of US firms were operating a different model called eat what you kill. So if you're bringing in more business into the firm, then your salary gets bumped up uh, incrementally or it'll get bumped up in proportion to, to that. There's different ways to, to really structure it. But this is one of the key things that some commentators have said was fueling the salary war, especially when there was a boom in between 2020 and 2022, late 2022. So if you actually look at, let's actually take a look at what are the market conditions during that period. Because keep in mind, I mentioned it's really expensive to pay new partners. And some firms, even the the, the revenue might even stall because they've been hiring so many partners. So what, what exactly underpinned this growth to the point whereby they could afford to do this and they thought that it was worth it, worthwhile as an investment? Let's look at back in around 2020. Uh, during COVID, um, when interest rates were around 0.1%, and keep in mind they're around 5.25% now, and there was an M&A boom. The equity capital markets were strong, Spe- special purpose acquisition companies were really hot. So for those who don't know what those are, I've explained in my previous podcast, but just to reiterate um, in perhaps a, a more summarized fashion, it's essentially a company where you raise funds, you issue shares in that company, you list it on the stock market, you raise funds like that, and then it merges with a potential target in an, in a sector of interest. So it might be healthcare, it might be tech, but you have two years to locate your, your target. So these, these were quite hot, and even venture capital was hot. You find uh, loads of venture capital firms just making investments. These private equity firms had so much what's called dry powder, they were now deploying. These are just funds that they can just deploy. Again, if there's M&A happening and it's large, very large ticket M&A, you're going to be finding leveraged finance and even dead capital markets in terms of raising funds to acquire companies that will be very, very hot. So keep that in mind. These U.S. firms, a lot of these U.S. firms grew up in that environment of big ticket M&A, private equity, dead capital markets. You could go back to the 80s and find firms like Skadden doing big ticket M&A. And I believe it was, I think when LVMH was trying to uh, perform a takeover, I can't remember on which company it was. Was it Gucci? I can't remember which company it was. But Skadden was advising them on a takeover defense, essentially. And this is like way back, way, way back. So you can imagine that history of these firms coming from that sort of environment, very, very strong corporate international practices coming in, they were bound to make a lot of money because they weren't, for example, hiring staff in other areas where they said that actually we might not decide to focus on this particular area as the standard full service firm might do. So this is 
the, the, the context behind these salary raises. So even find firms like Kirkland and Ellis, they pulled, in September 2022, they pulled three partners from Magic Circle firms within a week. And that's that's phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, Kirkland and Ellis has been pulling pulling partners, especially within infrastructure, M&A, leveraged finance. And again, this is where that discussion about the remuneration model comes in. And this is where it started to become a competition and a pay war in terms of like, you know, just we at the US firms, this is what the, the USP possibly was for people looking to apply there. Well, we can pay you X amount. Yes, you, you will work hard, but you'll be working on the biggest deals and you'll have access to cross-border work, specifically from the US because we're working with our US offices as well. But the whole point is what? You're going to be paid possibly a month that not very many people in the city are getting paid, period. And this is something that began to really worry other firms within the UK. They started to raise their salaries, raise their salaries. And I think some of the highest salaries, I think Aiken Gump is paying around 179000 a year to NQs. This is basically the kind of pressure that we're talking about. I mean, I personally heard stories of people who are in the fourth seats at, let's say, a magic circle firm. And you find recruiters in the, the inboxes saying that, hey, we have this offer from uh, this US firm. And some people literally just talk about, oh, well, this is definitely a pay bump. If I'm going to be working the same hours, maybe even 9 a.m. in the morning till 11 at night or 2 a.m. at night uh, on the off day, then you might actually be better off at a U.S. firm. That's what some people were saying. And obviously, this was within that boom. And uh, obviously, now that we've got into a higher interest rate period, it's really interesting to see that possibly some firms may have overhired but we won't really know the results until the next maybe one or two years to see if this was really worthwhile in terms of investment for these particular firms. But that's the context in which firms started to realize that, okay, this U.S. market is, I'd say they already knew in the past, <clears throat> but it was more like it became more urgent because it becomes a question of survival as, for example, even the magic circle, you know, the concept of the magic circle looking into that and seeing how that concept is changing as a result of now the merger between A&O Sherman. And we'll talk about Freshfields and what their senior partner had to say about the concept. But this is the context in which firms felt, I would say, pressured to start really seriously considering the US more deeply as a market to be reckoned with. So now let's look at our main case study for this deep dive. And we're going to be looking at something that broke the legal internet that's exactly what it did and to be fair it did kind of catch me off guard because i never really saw for once a no sherman and sterling being a thing but then when i started to think about it and that's what we're going to do in this deep dive it actually makes sense as a pairing in my opinion and uh, i guess some people can disagree but i actually think it's a good pairing in terms of the synergy, and we'll get into that in, in a moment. But for those who <clears throat> are unaware, which I highly doubt, um, towards the end of May, the the rumors were confirmed that Aino and Sherman and Sterling are merging. There was a joint statement released, and the internet really went wild just looking at the these two massive firms merging. And I guess 
there's there's many questions. We've already talked about how firms take risk on by looking at <clears throat> by looking at you know trying to expand into different areas. But what made these two firms want to go ahead and merge? So we've already discussed Aino trying to merge with O'Melveny and Myers in twenty nineteen, but these talks were actually aborted. And the main issue apparently was to do with the valuation of the total business. But keep this in mind when you're thinking about firm mergers. There's obviously different cultures, there's different financial structures, there's different profit sharing agreements. If they're like uh, part of an LLP network under Swiss Verein, these are key things to discuss when you're talking about merging the firms, uh, merging uh, the firm, so firms together. So if you look at this specific merger in 2019 that was proposed, there was also challenges with things like the lockstep model that we just talked about. There was discussion about governance structures and much more, but because of that, they actually said it wasn't going to work. So obviously, even within this deal, I should preface this before saying anything else. This is a very strategic and very, I'd say it's a very bold step by both firms. But you also need to keep in mind that every single merger has its challenges, not just in law, in general. So even now, I believe there was discussions about pensions and how to value those pensions and who's going to take what liabilities, uh, etc. And this is more or less the context of the discussions happening between both firms regarding um, the actual final merger. And obviously, it'll be put to a vote. But let's actually look at why I think Aino and Sherman are possibly a good match. And for me, it really has to do with finance. So this is the synergy aspect to it. But if you look at Aino, they have a very strong banking practice or just banking and finance practice. So if you look at some of the transactions that they've worked in, and I'm going to mention specifically some of them in the, the middle to, to far east, <clears throat> because this is, again, Sherman trying to reach into those areas. If you look at one of the most impressive transactions that uh, Aino has done, so they helped issue, um, they helped the Indonesian government issue the largest sukuk in history. This is the largest sukuk ever. And that's a huge transaction. For those who don't know what a sukuk is, it's basically an Islamic bond. And this is Aino's, Aino's bread and butter. So... If you look at that, and for example, the fact that if you read a loan market association agreement, and for those who don't know what the loan market association is, it's just basically um, a community of banks, lawyers, and borrowers trying to get standard documentation for loans. Guess who drafted those documents? Aino and Clifford Chance. That's basically it. So again, if you go back to my first episode as well, you can see that regarding dead capital markets, Aino has a very, very, very strong trustees practice. If you wanna if you're a nerd like me and you, you go through prospectuses sometimes in your free time, go to some of the earliest bond issuances in terms of like the nineties, late nineties, early two thousands, and you'll find Alan Inovri advising the trustees in almost every single bond issuance. Um and also possibly advising the, the syndicate of banks that are going to buy the bonds and on-sell them. Uh, but this is basically what we're looking at uh, when we're talking about Aino being this um, being at the pinnacle of finance with firms like Clifford Chance, for example, and big-ticket uh, debt capital markets, M&A, etc. 
So you have them. And then, of course, they want to continue to expand in areas like private equity, corporate. They're looking really to get into the U.S. But then at the same time, you also have Sherman, who have very, very strong finance practice, especially in project finance, debt capital markets. And this is actually one of Sherman's specialist areas. And for that reason, I think that there's enough synergy between these two firms, given that Sherman wants to go more into the Far East and to consolidate in the Middle East as well. These are really good points that I think that you should consider if you're asked, just in a general like conversation, like, you know, um, perhaps it's even on one of these commercial awareness competitions, anything like that, to give your take on the merger. There are a few other reasons, though, why I actually think that Sherman wanted this particular merger. And I actually think it has to do with two main things. And I would just class these as, first of all, economic headwinds and diversification being one point. And the second being the loss of key individuals in footholds where Allen and Overy was particularly strong. So obviously, I mean, it's, it's a bit more complex because, you know, you can't just necessarily look into uh, a law firm's finances and uh, have all of the information before you. But we do have some figures here and there that I managed to pull out from a few sites. So if you look at 2021, Sherman's revenue actually dropped by 11%. But then it was, you have this weird situation where the next year, the London office's revenue as well, and just generally the firm, the revenue jumped, and specifically in London by 27%. But towards 2022, 2023, you actually find Sherman's U.S. office cutting around 38 lawyers, citing themselves, by the way, economic headwinds. So this, again, I think, in my opinion, has to do with the fact that you have interest rates that are rising. You have m and in the second half of 2022 dropping by 33%. And I think this is one of the the the, the sharpest drops since the 80s. Um, and that's worldwide m and I believe. And this is where Sherman, I think, would have been disproportionately impacted, especially because of that specialism in finance. So even if you look at Legal, Legal 500, a lot of their rankings are finance-based. Just look at the London office specifically, you'll see that a lot of that has to do with finance, 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 or projects. And these areas, specifically finance though, are quite sensitive to these interest rate changes, especially if there's a downturn. And that's why from some firms, for example, like Will Gottschall, they have specifically, and even Kirkland and Ellis, they are looking to hedge that risk with having strong insolvency practices as well as strong big-ticket M&A and private equity practices. So this is a key thing to, to note when you're looking at different firms' models. And this is, again, it just proves that firms really do operate differently. Don't just look at the city and say, oh, all these are city firms and that's the end of it. Or even just if you're looking at other firms, don't just say that, okay, well, this is a firm and they operate in this way. These types of firms tend to operate in X way. Therefore, it must be true. Really try and understand which firms you're applying to. And then you can actually make a very informed decision about, hey, this is actually my dream firm. This is a firm where I think that I can be able to grow, etc. So that's the first part, economic headwinds. And I should add one more thing, perhaps. Uh, Adam Hackey, who is the senior partner at Sherman Sterling, he mentions that they're not actually financially struggling. And this, these two points can be true in terms of they can be economic headwinds 
and Sherman can be in a position where they're not necessarily financially struggling, but the profits or the revenues might be cut, which is just, it's, it's a fact. And this is what he's he, he mentioned in terms of stating specifically that Sherman can pay its bills and it can pay its associates, but there tends to be less left, especially in this period of time, to distribute to partners after paying those overheads and other costs. Now, the second point I want us to really delve into quite deep, and this is, if you're looking at building commercial awareness, I think that there's different stages, but if you can get to the point where you're starting to connect different articles from different sources to pull together a narrative, then that's where you're starting to really get into very complex commercial awareness. And I would say that that's really going to show out really well in your assessment centers as well. But even as a someone less who's in trainee, uh, the training right now, they're a trainee, it really just adds more complexity to the advice that you're, uh, or to the thinking that you're, you're giving to, to a piece of work when you're, when you're advising a client. So let's look at the second point which I talked about, which is the loss of key individuals and footholds where Alan Overy was particularly strong. So if we go back to late 2022, what we're going to find is there is a shocking raid by a French firm um, and oh my gosh, guys, you have to forgive me for pronunciation here, but I think it's Gide Lorette Noel. And again, you can you can delete that from your, your audio memories. But <laughs> generally speaking, if you look at what this firm actually took from Sherman, it was seven people, including two partners. So seven lawyers, including two partners from their Paris office, I believe it was, in October 2022. Although I should mention, just in all fairness, that Sherman did also hit DLA quite hard because they took four partners from them in late 2022. But that, that was just the beginning in terms of this string of people actually um, leaving Sherman and Sterling um, for different firms. So if you look at, for example, Germany, almost the entire team, that's a 20-person team, was lost to Morgan, Lewis, and Vokius when they were opening up their Germany office. So that's around 20 people. That's quite a significant loss in March 2023. And this is, by the way, after the Hogan Lovell's um, approach. So this just goes to show you that it's probably, in my view, and obviously this is it could be wrong because obviously we don't have access to all of the facts, but it could be that obviously there was economic headwinds and what they're really looking for is just simply to hedge their risks and to be able to expand their practice and to consolidate it in a different way. And that doesn't mean necessarily that the firm's practices were failing. It just means that when there are difficult times in terms of ebbs and flows in the market, you have to be creative in terms of how you're going to be able to regenerate and consolidate and keep business. So when they did approach Hogan Lovells in late, I think it was December 2022, this was what was happening. Now let's actually look at what happened in January. Um, this is just going back to a bit earlier, actually, you'll find that in the Middle East, again, Sherman lost a seven-lawyer team to Gibson Dunn um, in early January. And this was including three partners, and they were mainly in projects. And projects in the Middle East are quite, that's a very lucrative area. And even Sherman was ranked, I think it was tier one in that particular area. So this is, was quite a big loss for them to Gibson Dunn in that particular market and then, of course, in March, you actually have quite a string of losses. So you have, for example, on the 15th of March, there was reported that 
Asham and Sterling lost one partner, one counsel, and one senior associate in Paris to Alan and Overy. This was before the merger. And one partner in the Middle East to King and Spalding. And then again in March, you have uh, Cravath taking two leveraged finance partners to launch their English law, English law practice in March 2023. And then again in late March 2023, you have a leveraged finance lawyer going to Linklater's. But again, this is this is something just to, to give you an idea of what's actually happening. It seems that there was quite a string of different key individuals that were leaving. So it makes sense, in my opinion, <clears throat> to actually go forward with that merger and consolidate these particular areas. And if you look at post-merger, unfortunately, this trend did continue. So if you look at Asia and Europe, Sherman actually lost four partners across all those different areas to Ashurst, and they'll be joining the International Energy and Infrastructure team. Meanwhile, in June, you have Freshfields hiring a finance partner from Sherman, and again, Gibson Dunn hiring two projects and infrastructure partners from Sherman in July 2023. So to give you an idea of the impact of this within the UK, and actually just London, I think Sherman had the highest attrition rate in terms of partners. So they lost nine partners in the UK in 2023. That's more than Ince Group. And for those who don't know Ince Group, it was a firm that was listed on the stock exchange, but they recently went into administration. So they've actually lost more, more partners than them. And then also just another point to note is that there was speculation. And again, you can't really know, but Gareth Price, um, the managing partner, as he then was at ANO, left the firm shortly after that announcement was made. So if you look at those, that string of uh, people leaving the firm, for example, in key areas or key cities, key offices, I think that it actually is quite, quite a bold move and a smart move from Sherman to want to merge with ANO that has very, very strong um, relationships within these areas. And at the same time, it's quid pro quo. ANO is going to get the gateway into the U.S., and to these clients within the US. And I think that that's why I think it's a really, really good uh, idea for a merger. So that was our mini case study, and I hope that it was helpful. Once again, um, business is difficult, guys, <laughs> if you never noticed. But business is difficult. So even when we're talking about, like, you know, partners leaving firm X or Y, this is something that just generally tends to happen at some point um, in time. And certain firms do, for example, go through these ebbs and flows. And I would say, like, think of business as continuous strategy and bouncing back and looking at different situations. But that's that's the, the context in which we're mentioning this. So if I was to just cover one last topic before we conclude, which is like, what does this mean for other firms? And again, it just, it's a perfect segue from this other point of firms being able to bounce back and look strategically at their options. If you, meant, if, if you, if you never uh, heard earlier, we mentioned Clifford Chance starting those offices in LA and San Francisco and having to shut them down and the fact that they lost 38 lawyers. But now they're actually starting to really try and expand back into the US. And this has been a continuous process, piecemeal, but they recently launched an office in Texas that has 10 lawyers. Then that's quite significant, actually. 
And this is going to be part of the energy practice, I believe, in projects. That's what they're really focusing on. And for those who don't know, Texas, Texas is one of those places as well where there's a really, really big energy market, specifically in uh, gas and oil as well. But also, I believe there is quite just in general within the U.S. of a very heavy renewables market. So, I mean, when certain partners of the firm were asked about their thoughts of a merger, they said that they weren't really considering it. And this came out just as the firm was reporting seeing two billion uh, two billion pounds in revenue for the first time in their history. Uh, but again, they mentioned that there's no plan off the cards. But this is in line with their strategy now. And actually, I think, personally, if, if a firm came along, if the right firm came along, Clever Chance would also pursue a merger. Um, but obviously, it would have to be on Clever Chance's terms, in my opinion, just uh, based on the way they have their worldwide brand, etc. So they would have to make sure that they, they find a firm that they're quite happy with merging with. So that is one of the key things. Like the, You can see Clever Chance really trying to, to shout that from the rooftops the moment that this A&O... Um, Sherman announcement came out because you're shouting and saying to your clients hey listen we are also looking at the US and there's no need to worry um, we are still very serious about the US and this is what we're going to be doing and even you're getting similar or just a very interesting not reaction per se but just an interesting approach from Freshfield senior partner Georgia Dawson and she actually said that Freshfields is trying to break away from this magic circle name and move towards being more of an international firm. And I actually expect, I mean, we've already mentioned in terms of the, the m and global m and deals by value, Freshfields was the only UK firm within that top 10. I expect that they're going to double down on that. They're also going to really try and double down on the office in Silicon Valley. They have a hub there, for those who don't know. And... What they're trying to do, in my opinion, or from the way I'm seeing it, is having what I call a seed to IPO model. So there's this idea that you can be able to get a company that's getting early stage funding and you're advising them on that. But the hope is that from Silicon Valley, you have a lot of talent there. It'll keep growing and growing and growing those companies. And eventually they'll want to list, wouldn't they? So Freshfields can be able to help them with that. And they can make a lot of money in being able to possibly look at helping the next Airbnb or the next Uber or the next Snapchat or the next Apple. You know, this, these are things that they will most likely be looking to do. Then the last firm that I wanted us to look at, just because of time, was Slaughter and May. So Slaughter and May has a very, very interesting structure because they don't operate as a limited liability partnership. They operate as a general partnership that means that they don't have limited liability and that also means that they're not they don't need to really tell us anything about the financial situation or their accounts um and that's also a model that Jones Day has taken on board and that means it's an unlimited liability partnership and <clears throat> it could be i mean Jones Day has gotten several offices in different places i don't really know how this impacts um international expansion but i would say that my general hunch is when you have unlimited liability, although you have safeguards in place, I would actually think that maybe you're perhaps going to be more risk averse compared to firms that have limited liability, just because the partner's funds are definitely, like the actual individual funds are going to be on the line if, for example, there is a debt that is incurred by the firm. But again, the safeguards in place, uh, we don't know how 
it really operates um, on the ground level. But it, that's generally the, the, the general principle that we're talking about here. But if you look at Slaughter and Me and how they operate on an international scale, they actually have um, best friend networks. So, for example, within, I believe it is the UAE, they have Afridi and Angel as one of their best friend firms. And very recently in New York, there was also Cravath, Swain and more. So those, even if you go into the website, there was a trainee that went there and he went for a trial and stuff. So there, there is, they're trying to build that strong best friend firm relationship. Uh, but now, if you look at this context of, you know, firms moving to the U.S. and firms trying to, from the U.S. trying to consolidate their practice in the U.K., I really wonder what this means for Slaughter and May because Cravath was, is now practicing English law in, in London. So technically, the, that means that they their competitors and i don't know what that means in terms of for for slaughter and me what they're gonna what's gonna happen with 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 their best friend uh agreement and perhaps maybe slaughter and me will have to look at a different firm and even this was the same case with mcfarland's that also i think kravath was sending some work so i don't know exactly how it works but that might have to be considered for both mcfarland's and slaughter and me but again, the same thing happened with Davis Polk. I believe Slaughter and May and Davis Polk had a very loose tie-up. And this was way before, I think it was 2013, before Davis Polk started practicing English law. But when they did, they had to pivot away from that uh, best friend partnership. So in sum, I think that this merger in particular is going to put pressure on large UK and international firms looking at this big ticket m and work, big funds work, big private equity work to really start considering the US and making strides because clients are definitely going to be asking questions and perhaps they'll be looking at this, getting the best of a, a firm that has a New York practice that is well revered um, compared to also having a magic circle firm, uh, traditionally magic circle firm, um, just merging together and providing those services. It's a very, very unique pair up and I would really like to see uh, what happens uh, when the deal closes and to see what it'll actually look like after the fact. Thank you once again to all of the listeners. I really appreciate you tuning in. We surpassed 100 plays just the other week. So really thank you so much for your support. Please be sure to share the podcast with your friends. I hope you found it useful. And just as a reminder, we'll be going on a one-week break just for the the season break the regular season break and that's how it'll be for every season and then we'll be starting off season two where we'll be talking about some more commercial awareness stories thank you so much for listening my name is adnan shafi and have a good evening or morning or day depending where you are